the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk, online 1160hope.com, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. That's a lot. I got that all in like in record time right there. Yeah, I was timing you. Yeah. It is a record. Yeah, I got to be honest. I got a little distracted because somebody just walked by. You know, we always talk about how in our studio we're like in a zoo. <laughs> somebody just walked by with what, like just look like an awesome plate of food. Can we can we figure out? I know this won't be funny to anyone listening, <laughs> but can we get cost like animal costumes just once and just be in here doing the show normally and just see. Like, as people walk by the sort of zoo-type setting, if they I respond. Got, let's do it on October 31st. <laughs> Count me in. I'm in. I'm in. It is funny, though. It is like uh, your, your people just kind of look into you like like they're surprised to see you here. Like, hey. Oh. I <laughs> wonder if people, like, has anyone ever stopped, like, with a thing of popcorn and just stared? <laughs> just stared. Or they, don't mind they, me. <laughs> <laughs> just watch it through the glass. There was one time somebody from the station, their their kid was here, remember? And they just kind of kept looking at it to you. And they're looking at, <laughs> that's true. Them. And I'm so easily distracted. Yeah, that's fun. But, well, anyway, we're glad that you're here today. Uh, so I wanted to start, mm, I know you're probably over it by now, but I'm going to rip the band-aid back off, the scab back off here. <laughs> Thanks. So I, one reason I wanted to have this conversation is because uh, we've talked often about being a sports fan, and I am way, I take it way, way, way too emotional. Yeah, you mentioned teams. that. I appreciate you wanting that. Mets fan, particularly with two teams, the New York Mets and the New York Giants. I grew up in New Jersey. I will, like, it'll ruin my day right. or make my day when these teams lose. And I'm always like, man, I'm a 42-year-old guy. Like, <laughs> this feels a little, why am I losing sleep? Because the right, Mets right, right. just gave up a homer. Are you having that thought in the midst of it, by the way? Like, if you're really bummed, like, I should not be this bummed, but I am this bummed. But I can't stop myself. But you can't stop, else. right, right. So one of the things that makes it nice that the Giants aren't any good this year, because it's kind of like, it's like a, it's like a sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like... Oh, when they win, it's really fun. But well, when they lose, I'm like, yeah, they lost. There's some truth to that, though. Like when I played soccer as a kid, um, I, yeah, I can get weirdly competitive when I'm playing the sport. Yep. And I had a team one year that was like 0 and 15. <laughs> and by you know, once you lose eight in a row, you're like, all right, well, I'm not going to get all that upset anymore. Yeah, I get orange slices. You're right, at the end. <laughs> exactly. At least there's a snack. And so, why do I bring this up? Because why do you bring if this up? Anybody uh, <laughs> has been a part of this show for a while. They know you're from Detroit or That's the Detroit right. area, That's at right. least. Yep. And uh, you are uh, you have kept your fandom. So you are a Detroit Lions fan. Mm-hmm. So scale of one to ten, your fandom is uh, how passionate? Oh, you know, probably seven. That's okay. Yeah, 
Yep, yep. And and now your team is long suffering. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> That's a very nice way to put it. Yes. But your team's pretty good this year. Yeah. But when you watch them, they're pretty good. Uh huh. And on Monday Night Football uh, at Lambeau okay. Field, they got hosed. Yes. I'm going to say it for Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate as that. As someone who had no rooting interest in the game, uh, I thought I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Where like, oh, those refs were literally wanted your team to lose, but. Every bad, there was a lot of bad calls, and like 90% of them went against you, including the egregious one at the end that, for all intent, they still had to make it a short field goal, but all intents right. and purposes ended the game. Yeah. So I wanted to play a clip from Lions safety named Tracy Walker, kind of echoing how he feels as a player. Uh, and then I want to know what it's like to be a fan watching that <laughs> game, watching it deteriorate, well, yeah. like kind of losing control a little bit there. Right now, from what I just saw, honestly, I'm just going off of bad calls right now. I feel like we, we left plays out there, and it was just some bad calls out there left out. It seems like that's been a theme across the NFL. Detroit versus everybody. I wasn't even saying Detroit. I'm, I'm saying just... Detroit versus everybody. It's awful. I'm talking about other teams in the league, too. It seems like it has the same issues with, with bad calls. Do you think that's an issue league-wide? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, no, that ain't, that ain't, that's above my pay grade. But, you know, like I said, just off of my game tonight, you know, it, it was awful. Tracy Walker, he he of one of the bad calls. I think he got called for an unsportsmanlike conduct when he was literally trying to catch the ball and ran <laughs> right, into someone right, else. Right, right. Um, but a litany of bad calls that I don't, you know, I don't think it's overstatement to say it cost your team the game. Hmm. So just curious, as a fan, as you're watching it unravel, then we'll make some life connections here. As you're watching <laughs> it unravel, are you able to be like this just stinks, or are you like I want to throw my phone or computer or whatever through a window right now? Uh, closer to the latter than I'd like to admit. Uh, it is a little silly. Like we don't have cable in our house, so I have like the uh, the NFL yep. the app on my phone. So it's like on the it's on. I'm modeling it for you. No one can see this. It's, it's on the table, and I'm like yelling at the phone <laughs> on the, on the table. My wife is like, "You need to calm down." Which is funny because I'm not. That's not normally my posture. Yep. But you know, watching games like that, and this one certainly. I mean, I'm not excusing any behavior. This one was maddening for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, there's and maybe this is the life lesson thing that you're kind of pointing toward because I've been a Detroit Lions fan my entire life. Uh, I don't even want to talk about Thanksgiving. It really, it really does. It really does. But like, I think that there's something there's something to be said about getting your hopes up and then having them dash to the ground again uh, and then uh, ramping back up to have, and then hearing the same commentators, the same sentiments every single time. And then they're rebuilding. Oh, they look like you were just saying it. Oh, they look really good this year. And I'm like, I've heard this song and dance before. <laughs> We've been there. It's <laughs> <laughs> always something. And I know that we're not the only team at all, but I, yeah, I even had friends who were Packers fans. Like, Hey, I hate the lions. You guys still should have won that game. Yep, yep. I thought, oh, all right. Well, I appreciate that. You knew it was bad when there was a tweet that came out. Did you see this tweet from the person who is the least likely to say something controversial? There was a tweet uh, bemoaning the officials by Barry Sanders. <laughs> oh, yes. Right, right. And, uh, if Barry Sanders yes. is saying something right. at all, you know it's pretty bad. Well, let me. I got to give a shout out to my dad real quick because I posted on Facebook. I said, Lions 22, refs 23. <laughs> uh, and my dad commented... He said, didn't turn it on until the second quarter. Lions up 13-0. After the 12 men on the field call, which led to a 13-10 game, I turned it off. I thought, this is a rerun. I've seen this game before. <laughs> Slept like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. See, I want that perspective in my life. Did you see you guys get called for a 12 man on the field, and there was literally a document where the Packers had 13 a little later in the game? 
and they didn't uh, get golf yes. for it. Yes, Brian, I did uh, know that. I feel I feel for you. Having been there yeah, and having that's thrown true. things, that's true. I'll never forget. You're a thrower? Oh, if it's bad enough. I'll never forget the Giants in the playoffs a couple years ago. And oh, two instances. One, they were in the playoffs in like 02. Yeah. And had a, I believe it was a 35 to 13 lead, lost mm. the game. Right. That was awful. Yep. And then when they played the arch rival Eagles, uh, if they won the game, they would win the division. And uh, they were up 31 to 10 going into the fourth quarter and lost the first team ever to lose <laughs> on a walk off punt return. Oh, gosh. And I just, I literally just laid down. <laughs> Did you? Like, I quit. I'm I, done here. <laughs> In some ways, sports does give us a uh, a way to. It, it, it's a microcosm of life, right? Yeah, like sometimes right. you just look at life and you're like, it's just not fair, right? Well, and the fairness thing, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. It's why I think youth sports, when done well, is really really important. It's not just about like dedication, <clears throat> discipline, and teamwork. Right. It is also how do you deal with loss? How many adult people have you met? I'm not even saying just in athletics, who like in social or professional interactions cannot deal with. A loss of some kind. Right. You're like, wow, you you need to go back about twenty years and cope with some stuff. <laughs> and not that I'm saying the Lions have like helped form this in me, but it certainly has given our family opportunities to talk about. Okay, it's okay to be disappointed. What do we do with this disappointment? How yeah. do we how do we move on? Should we put as much hope in them next time? Like I remember these being actual conversations in our house, and I not to get too existential. Nope. I've really appreciated it. And, you know, I think like Chicago Cubs fans can probably teach us something about long suffering yes. and what like holding out hope can look like and what it can mean. And there's probably a lot of metaphors there. At the end of the day, it was still a, fo- <laughs> a, a maddening football yes. game. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But you know what you're going to do this week? Watch it again. Of course. <laughs> That's what makes us fans. I'm, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> glutton for punishment. Uh, well, coming up next, uh, we're going to take a little bit more of a serious turn and uh, just a video that came out earlier in the week uh, that I really thought couldn't have actually been true. Couldn't have been real. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, we've been talking all week about how tired you are. Still feeling tired? Catching up on your sleep? Well, people, the the, the, the masses want to know. Do they even how is, care? I, they do. I don't. I'm caffeinated. I, I run into people on the street and they ask me, how's Ian? Is he doing better? Is he still a little tired? No, the people on the street. No, I was walking downtown Neighborville the, the other street. day. I got inundated. <laughs> it's like the save Ferris water tower, but it's just yeah. <laughs> my, my tired face. I doubt that very much. No, we're, we're powering through. We're, we're having some... Sleep issues in my house right now, uh, but nobody not, can prepare you for it. That's what. Yeah. And I kind of thought that I had. But I was not a good sleeper like in college. I was the king of the overnighters, not the overnighters. The all all nighters, nighters. Yes. Overnighters are sleepovers that children do. Uh, <laughs> in college, I was in king college. of the overnighter. <laughs> I was always sleeping in other people's rooms. Oh, God. Um, that's Pull not what I, Yeah, my bad. Too late. <laughs> so, yeah, I think in my in my head, I'm like, yeah, I can, I can function on three hours sleep. I cannot function oh. on three hours sleep. So, you know, doing our best to power through. That's because you're in your mid-30s now. Is that what it is? Yes, oh, yes, boy. Yes. Uh, so the other day, I'm sure people have seen this by now, but we, I know it's a couple of days old. We still wanted to touch on it. And it was this video that came out online showing a uh, uh, it was kind of a fake Donald Trump shooting journalists and political rivals. Uh, the New York Times reports that the video was broadcast at a Miami conference for Trump supporters last week. 
And uh, in the video, the fake Trump shoots a number of people whose faces have been replaced by logos, logos of news media organization. He also assaults uh, Maxine Waters, hits former President Barack Obama in the back and lights Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders head on fire. Oh, boy. So let's be really honest in the beginning. Nobody is at all suggesting that this came out of Donald Trump or this came from uh, from the White House. But this I was, think the White House is outright condemned it. Actually. I believe yeah. so by now. So nobody is saying that. But uh, I all of a sudden people on Twitter started being like, hey, don't like this is such a disturbing video. And like how we always do. Right. It's like if people are like, don't look at this train. Tr- don't look at this car wreck. You're like, right. Well, I want to look at this car wreck. <laughs> right. So you right. click on it. And yeah. uh, I don't know. Did you see the video? I did. Yeah. Oh, thoughts on it. I mean, it's awful. It's really troubling. Right. It's really troubling. There's a lot of stuff that's troubling on the Internet. I don't know why this one resonates so much more deeply, but really? it's awful. It's pretty bad. I think this one resonates deeply for a couple different reasons. One was that it's literally a picture of the president. And I know, again, he had nothing to do with it. Right. But the people who made it uh, at a Miami conference for Trump supporters, uh, like they thought it was a funny idea, I suppose. Right. right. Again, like he's in a church where there have been mass shootings. Right. And he's literally graphically shooting these people with just no faces but their faces say like new york times right or like you know msnbc but then also his political opponents and i think why it was so disturbing was a the graphic nature of it but b uh who would who would do such a thing in this culture that we live in where there are mass shootings going on and people are scared right and people are saying that donald trump and others don't necessarily actually uh, cares the wrong word about like you know gun control debate or whatever right right now you're kind of feeding into the fire and i think when i first watched it i was like man that's that's like chilling like that was just yeah. a really chilling and i think that's why people are like wow that really crossed a line yeah it also feels tone deaf and mm-hmm. you know you and i have talked about to a much lesser degree the disappointment when someone you know from your church like goes online and says something maybe even on behalf of your church that just yeah is not at all like the heartbeat of what you're trying to cultivate at all. So I'm not saying like exactly to what you said, you know, like just because somebody is pro Trump and makes something awful, it, does that in any way mean that like they're, you know, sanctioning that or they're standing in approval of it? Not at all. Obviously uh, it is troubling though, that things like that somebody, this wasn't done by just some kid in his basement. Then somehow yeah. like leaked on Reddit. It was like used, in a conference setting, right? And right. that's that to me is is like I don't know if we're just becoming more and more desensitized and we require things to be more and more graphic to in any way kinda trigger that dopamine rush in the brain or if we are if we've always been this way and we're just seeing more of it. But it just it just felt tone deaf. You're like really right now yeah. with everything that's going on, is this the and I not I mean that's not to say that I haven't said really stupid stuff and put my foot in my mouth and thought like that was really insensitive, especially to this person's circumstance or whatever. You know, I'm I'm not saying that either of us we have microphones in front of us a lot these days, and I'm sure there's plenty of things we've got like, we, sh- we could pull back and say. I guess I wouldn't have said it that yeah. way, but I don't know this cultural moment that just felt so egregious and so unhelpful i guess and I, maybe the goal wasn't for it to be helpful yeah. and so the creators of it were like well yeah, it's just meant to be funny and uh maybe you just don't get my humor yeah i don't know i, I don't get the purpose and then i do think uh that this the desensitizing desensitizing 
of violence in our culture is really also disturbing. As, yeah. as somebody who's got kids at the age where, you know, my kids don't play a ton of video games, but I see some of the video games their friends play, and I see some of the movies that come out. Like, I'm still the guy who's pausing stuff so my kids don't have to watch certain commercials. Right, right. Um, and again, I don't think people shoot up, you know, schools because of video games or because of this, but they certainly don't help. Hmm. And so to see this coming out and, like, be so widely portrayed, you're just like, oh... Uh, why are we? Why? Why even go down that road? Why even yeah. go down the road when you understand the cultural context uh, into which we're doing this uh, is just like you said. I think it's tone deaf, but I don't think the people who made it cared. I think it was done for a point and exactly the point that came out. Like I don't understand how we don't see it as a bad thing that we can portray uh, violence and shooting of say news organizations, whether you believe they're fake news or not. And not think that that puts people's lives at risk. Right. And doesn't incite certain people, not mass crowds of people, but incite certain people. Like, it's just playing with fire. And I think we as a culture just need to be so much more careful. Yeah. I wonder if there's a part or a sense. And I wish I had, like, a statement from the people that created it. Because I think, um, you know, whenever it comes to demonstrations, lampoon to street theater, part of the sentiment is that. You know, they want people to find it upsetting in (laughs) order to draw attention to a systemic issue or some sort of policy discrepancy or whatever. Like often the motivation is we want you to be a little upset by this because it's making a bigger claim or a larger statement about something that's true or should be true in culture. I wonder if if they would look at that and say, like kind of even thinking back to uh, to Gillis, the guy that was cut from SNL, right? Like, for you know. Anti, anti, um, who's he speaking against specifically? Uh, he was just making racist comments yeah, on the podcast in general, in general, right? Yeah. And he kind of doubled down. He's like, hey, that's part of what comedy is. It's saying mm. tough things. It's controversial things. And I wonder if the same sentiment for people that create things like this. Like, hey, we're just trying to draw attention and some stuff. And sometimes you got to be edgy to do it. And the very fact that you're talking right now kind of proves our point. Yeah. Um, that is sort of a treadmill to nowhere, though, isn't it? Like, then we just keep trying to one-up each other to be more controversial than the other? Yeah, yeah. And I don't really know what the end game that whole there is. to the polls again. And yeah, right. I guess I would also say, like, I was just reading that the White House condemned it, but for the amount of time that President Trump tweets, it would be it would send a powerful message if he condemned it. And yeah. just said from his mouth, like, no, this is not appropriate. Ha- has he not? No, he hasn't. Mm. And, I like, that's where these kind of things get politicized, right? right like, it's just right. this... Well, you know, they're on my side, so I'm not going to say anything or vice versa. And you're just like, can we just all agree that graphic violence and this kind of stuff is bad? And as parents, like I, I would be really careful letting your kids see stuff like that. And the very fact that we have to worry about that says it's not appropriate well, yeah, that's and should point. be avoided. Yeah, that's a good point. We'd love your thoughts on this. You can do it at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, Joe Rogan, uh, well-known for podcasts, uh, host of some TV shows and other things. Gives us the secret to his success. Something very interesting we're going to talk about next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. This new music? Welcome back to The Common Good music? on AM 1160. Brian, Hope for your life. I think this is new music. You're, before I could even get the name out, you were so excited about yeah, new music. I think it is. Did you uh, bring this new music? Like, Did you introduce this? Or is this? are you being surprised by this? Well, I provided like a whole list of bands, but I didn't specify any songs or not. And I don't know if... Uh, my back's to the glass right now. So no. like, is John nodding? Is that He's new? He's smiling and nodding. He's very proud of himself. He does smile and nod at us a lot, though. What uh, do you, Can you tell the band what that was? Uh, yeah, there's that a... Uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. I won't know. Anyway, make it up. That's, <laughs> it's it's uh, Brian Fromm and the Funky Bunch. Taylor Swift. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
Taylor Swift is where you went first. Yeah. That's your first go-to. Sorry, sorry, music. sorry. Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're learning a whole lot yeah, right now yeah. by this. If I told you I have teenage children, that's, you did mention that. That's true. I'm going to ask Two them. Two of which are daughters. Do yes. they actually listen to those artists? I mean, they'll they'll know them, but they they do not listen like many of their classmates do. But uh, they will. All, songs will come on the radio and they'll start right. singing them. Let's put the it hook. that way. You're off the hook. Uh, but yeah, a little catchy, uh, catchy. Well, I like that. Uh, that was good music. That was good. People probably have picked this up, but like you're the music guy of us here. I mean, we're both the music guys. I mean, but how many times have you said, hey, do you want to hear the music? I'm like, I no, you're good. I trust you. Because <laughs> that's not my thing. Trusting you you have a love for music. That's true. I do. A love for music. So uh, anyway, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Give us some music there. Tell us what you want to listen to. Hmm. Uh, Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. Or you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Well, Joe Rogan. You ever heard of Joe, Joe Rogan? I, yes. <laughs> what, what about Joe Rogan's career? Uh, where do you know him from? Probably first Fear Factor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you used to watch that show? Oh, yeah. I, I don't feel like I could handle it. It was really It was like the cutting edge of really gross reality shows. Oh, even watching it was too much for you? I remember watching it, but then being like, what am I doing watching them eat like bug larvae or whatever it was? Yeah, it was pretty gross. I'm not going to lie. It was like it took everything that was kind of gross at the beginning of reality TV and like put it on steroids. Right. It wasn't right. like, oh, maybe we can eat this bug. It's like, eat these 10 bugs <laughs> and you win. And like faster than the people next to Right. The speed was as disturbing as the actual task. But Joe Rogan, and we're taking this article from something called Goldcast.com. Joe Rogan has had a fascinating career arc. So he did Fear Factor. Uh, he was one of the, he was the face of UFC when, when the Ultimate Fighting Championship first mm-hmm. started. Like he was like their first commentator. Uh, Joe Rogan was that. He was a stand-up comic or is a stand-up comic right, to right. some success. And recently, you were looking up some stats. He, the Joe Rogan podcast, I think it's called, yeah. is maybe one of the single most successful podcasts that, that exists. Yeah, like top 10 easily. What was the money you said? You just found this online. It was like $100 million in revenue. Yeah, they're guessing 50 to 100 a year. They're guessing somewhere in the 100 million plus downloads a week. Now, yeah. 1.5 plus billion listens a year. That is common good territory right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I hope John edits this out for the podcast. And you, it's just you saying it with no laughter. Yeah, like like Brian's serious. really serious. Yeah. Please subscribe, rate, review our 1.5 million. That's something Joe Rogan probably never says. No, it's not. No, it's not. So that's a that's now where he's at in his career, and he has he has done some stuff and then moved on to the next stuff. Just a fascinating career arc. And so they use him in this article, and they it's entitled this: Joe Rogan's secret to success: strategic quitting. Hmm. Strategic quitting. Uh, And basically, this article asks this question by Emily Davis. How much passion is too much? She says, today, there's so much pressure to be really good at one thing. One half of that pressure comes from social media, where you need to create your presence and be your own cohesive brand to get any attention. The other half of the pressure comes from the need to create a passionate career for yourself. And so basically, it's this. In our culture, the expectation or the hope is like you're going to zero in on one thing. Like Ian Simpkins is going to be good at X or not even good, great Hmm. at X. And you're going to put all your time into that and you're going to be looked up to for that, whatever. And, And what this author does is say, look at somebody like Joe Rogan. Uh, who through his career has been successful and then moved on to something else and then been successful and then moved on to something else and had repeated successes. And, and this person here is suggesting that maybe it's more healthy and maybe it's 
more advantageous to us to kind of go about life that way. Well, I like this quote here. He says, the idea is once you understand what excellence is all about, whether it's in painting or carpentry or martial arts, you see uh, you see how that excellence manifests itself in any discipline. I think that all the different things that I do enhance all the other things I do. Mm-hmm. And later it says, excellence in anything increases your potential in everything. So I'm torn on this article, though, because one of the phrases that we've used a lot is along obedience in the same direction. Mm-hmm. This isn't necessarily a direction thing, but some of what I think, at least historically, what's in sort of a... Something that older generations have railed on millennials and now Gen Z is that they're sort of just all over the place with their goals and desires and their passions. And that because they don't actually commit to one thing, they end up just sort of aimless. Uh, Joe, again, I think would rail against that. I don't think these were like aimless attempts at different things. So the strategic part of quitting is probably that's probably what's missing from a lot of people's quitting. They just quit because they're bored or they're not satisfied. So I'm like, "Ah, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to try something else. Uh, I'm intrigued by the idea, though. It's always the caveat, though, is like the reason we're talking about it is because he's so successful. It's good. How many people listening are saying what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right, exactly. I've been strategically quitting for decades (laughs) and I failed in all of these things. So that's difficult, too. But there's always a part of me that thinks, at, at least at some level, someone who still has the spine X amount of years into their career or with mouse defeat at home or whatever. I'm like, nah, I, I really feel like I got something else in me and like choosing to take the leap. I think that's more heroic than we often talk about. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that's always the case. I think sometimes yeah. we do need to learn from like, now you need to lean in actually to this particular job or this particular place when things get tough. That's where a lot of the growth and maturity comes from. And if we just keep cutting yeah. and running that, you know, you're, you're kind of shortchanging yourself a little bit. Yeah, sometimes. Something that doesn't happen anymore is like uh, my father-in-law, right? He started working at a company uh, I think even during college, if not right after graduation, mm. and retired from it. No kidding. <laughs> like, and that was nor- uh, more normal. Maybe more not normal. normal. Yeah. Maybe Definitely I generational. Normal, more for normal. Sure. I mean, I can't imagine anybody doing that now. Like, hey, That's true. Hey, I, I, I entered a church right out of seminary and then retired That's 50 true. years later. Well, then you have like a David John Ferguson who started the church yep. 30 years ago, you know, in their early 20s. That's, yep. that's the, the only like church they've known in their adulthood. You know, that's... That's impressive. It does happen, though. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, now, one spot where I think this is really important to grapple with is, is with kids. And yeah, right. there is, uh, those of you who think your kid is going to be a professional athlete, uh, you start to, uh, like, let's say it's baseball, what yeah. my son's playing. You start to see a lot of other kids where yeah. all their parents do is let them play baseball. Uh-huh. Uh, all fall, indoor in the winter, play 50 games in the spring, right. private instruction, this and that. When, in fact, when they look at, even professional athletes now, almost exclusively, they they were multiple sports people into college hmm. or into high school. And there's a lot of research out there that says if you actually want your kid to be a great athlete, the worst thing you can do for them is specialize at an early age. Really? But yet the cultural trend is specialize, specialize, specialize. Right. They actually say the worst thing you can do, not just because they're going to burn out and not want to do it anymore. Right. That's part of but it. But their bodies weren't made to do it. So mm. throwing and throwing, throwing. But also you learn things from each different kind of sport right. that makes you a better athlete. Uh, Urban Meyer, I remember, said uh, when he was at Ohio State, like they only recruit people who played multiple sports. No kidding. Yeah. Or at least that's what they preferred. And they look for it even in high school. And wow. but yet our culture goes the other way. It's a really interesting dynamic. It's funny, too, because as a kid, I was terrible at this. Like, I would be really excited about karate. And then three weeks in, I'm like, I'm done with karate. And like, <laughs> yeah. again, props to my parents. are like, no, you're going to keep going for at least six months or whatever. Karate is like my mom jokes. I don't know if this is a true story or not. 
she said, I stopped bringing you to Baskin Robbins because you just wanted to sample all of them. <laughs> like, it was just painful. Like, just pick a flavor, son. And that became a little bit of a metaphor. Like, oh, you're all the, the instinct, the, the mechanism inside Ian Simpkins is to be endlessly fascinated oh, and endlessly funny. curious. So sometimes I need to learn and strengthen, like, nah, hone in on the specialized piece. But I think, I think Joe Rogan, given his success, uh, this is actually a really intriguing article to me. It really is. So you can find it on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, love to have your thoughts on this idea of strategic quitting. Uh, coming up next, we are going to talk about uh, mass incarceration and the new study that came out from the American Civil Liberties Union. That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this hump day, Wednesday afternoon. That's the most hump day. Like level I've heard you say that. <laughs> I've never said it before. That's not true. My you... kids my kids love that commercial. Still, you remember that commercial? Just hump day? This is what you do every time. What? You mention hump day on the show. I don't think I've ever done it before. And then you mentioned that your kids like the commercial. No, now you're messing with me. I'm not. At least. I'm going to go back and listen to every Wednesday show that I've ever driven. Either way, I win because. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to the Wednesday I, shows. I think at least twice. That's not all the time. <laughs> no, <laughs> we've done that's true. This for that's 10 true. months now. <laughs> that's true. Now, wow, we've been doing this for 10 months, too. Let's get really introspective. It was a long time. What's your favorite? What's the favorite? What's your best show? What's your favorite topic we've tackled in 10 months? Favorite interview. Go. Favorite interview? Yeah. Oh, man. This feels like what we'll do it a year here. But you know. nah, I can't do the interview ones because that's personal. There's so many. Least so favorite many. interview. Nope. Not doing that either. <laughs> we have them, what's though. The, what's the topic that like surprised you the most, though? Like the There's been a couple I remember where you were saying, man, we started this article, and oh, by right. reading it, I've actually changed my mind. Or like the response on Facebook was way over the top, and you're like, yeah. oh, I did not anticipate did not that, that at all. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised how much we do that. Like It deals with like like brain science and like how you're mm-hmm. wired and this and that, this, this, yeah. When we finally hit a year, if we hit a year, we'll go, <laughs> we're going to start that show with top 10 least favorite interviews. Um, I don't want to we'll play, play that game. Kif- we'll play. I do. That'd be fun. Of course you do. You should work it into what grinds my gears. <laughs> we haven't done that in a while. I think it's because you were gone. It grinds my gears. <laughs> Let's do that tomorrow. It's so esoteric. <laughs> So inception. The of you. lack of grinds my gears. Grinds, grinds my, my gears. gears. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of grinding my gears, here we go. Uh, a shocking new study, and this is actually a couple years old by the time we found it, but a shocking study by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Let me just read some of this for you, some of the highlights or lowlights, if you will. And I want to have a discussion about what does this say about our culture? What is our response to it? What does. Uh, what does it say about um, just our role, uh, the role of prison? We'll go with that. What's the, even the role of prison in our culture? Here we go. A study by the ACLU has found that more than 3,200 people nationwide are serving life terms without parole for nonviolent offenses. Of those prisoners, 80% are behind bars for drug-related convictions. 65% are African-American, 18% are white, and 16% are Latino, evidence of what the ACLU calls extreme racial disparities. The crimes that led to life sentences in, in this study include stealing gas from a truck, shoplifting, possessing a crack pipe, facilitating a $10 sale of marijuana, and attempting to cash a stolen check. And then this goes on uh, to do an interview with the person who was behind this. Her name is Jennifer Turner. 
uh, human rights researcher and author of the report, A Living Death, Life Without Parole for Nonviolent Offenses. I would start it this way. When I read this, I was really surprised. Were you? Yeah. And maybe I think this is probably one of those just naive moments, mm-hmm. but I was, uh, I was surprised by, uh, by these statistics. Well, I uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. So Eric Dorsey and Amy Plummer, who are on staff at Community, they run what's called Community 412, along yep. with Steph Coleman in the city. And uh, in particular, Eric Dorsey is at the helm of Community Freedom, our effort to plant churches in prisons, which, by the way, I don't think I can share yet. We have some exciting new updates, so there's some That's things awesome. moving there. But just having them around and learning from them, some of these, some of these statistics surprise me less now than they did a year ago, simply because... You've learned. They're being very diligent in helping like raise these conversations and helping keep us informed as staff. Because even though I'm not officially on the Community 412 or the Community Freedom team, uh, you know, we talk about the messages that are being used are the messages from Sunday. So I'm like involved in it in oh. some capacity, and I want. I'm. It's a topic that I'm. I'm really interested in, but I actually know very little about. And uh, it is reports like this that I find really troubling. But also, like you said. A lot of people just don't know. So, no. you know, you're sitting here thinking, this is new information to me. What am I supposed to do with this? Because it has a lot to do, you you would see in this article, it's a lot to do with the states that have the three strikes and you're automatically get natural life in prison. Right. Regardless of what that third strike is. Right. Right. And, right. and that's how you end up with these, what we would say are, are ridiculous prison sentences for for something, you know, small, like, uh, like you know, stealing gas from a guest or whatever they said, $10 worth of marijuana or whatever. And uh, it gets to the heart of, like, what do we believe? Do we believe that people can be rehabilitated? Yeah. Do we believe that people can be changed? Mm. And what does that say about us as a culture when we say, nope, uh, for even nonviolent offenses, if you've done too many of them, uh, we are going to lock you up for the rest of your life. Like, there's, there's, that says something about what we believe. Well, and there's a lot to be said, too, about not even just what you believe, but do our current systems actually accomplish what right. it is that we believe, right? It's really, a, it's a two-pronged discussion. And again, both of us, you know, we're speaking as novices, so ne- neither of us are saying that we have any way cornered this market. You know, it was actually one of us every summer, well, maybe every other summer, we've done a series called Conversations where we interview. Yeah. We had uh, Matt Sorens, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Yep. Uh, he was one of our conversations a couple of years ago. Um, but we had a guy that wrote Rethinking Incarceration. His name's Dominic, and he is a, oh. have you read this book? Nope. Are you familiar? So he's nope. a, a pastor and an activist and an author and a speaker. And uh, again, it was just 25 minutes, you know, that's sort of our sermon window on Sundays. Yep. But just even in that 25 minutes, you know, Dave Ferguson was interviewing him, asking him some questions. And I was amazed at how many people were really, really open and hungry to learn more because these were conversations that they weren't even familiar with having. So the, the book, Rethinking Incarceration, is really good. Um, but it will also feel like a punch to the gut, though, if you mm. get it and really read through it, and you probably will disagree with some of it. But it is it's eye-opening, eye-opening and convicting, but it's also, in some way, it's like a book of lament. You're like, wow, this is way more complicated and way more broken mm. than I realize. It's not just about, like, oh, man, people did small things and got life sentences. There's all sorts of, like, systemic stuff yeah. that's kind of caught up in that that is very, very tough for a lot of us to talk about. Yep, and... It's why I feel the way I do increasingly about the death penalty. Like yeah, right. I don't, I don't see if you believe that people are are um, redeemable and that that people can be changed. How you can then say, but you know, for a certain level of crime, we're going to kill them. 
Yeah, uh, right. I understand that for those who have suffered at the hands of those people, you know, it might be a different story. But uh, the question comes back to what are we trying to accomplish in our criminal justice system? Are we trying to accomplish rehabilitation so that they, people can be um, productive, not productive, but just regular members of society? Yeah. Well, the answer is clearly no. If we're saying, well, after a certain number of times, you're gone. Well, I'm, I understand that there needs to be the punishment needs to fit the crime. And I think that's what makes this hard that just because there's multiple of them still doesn't feel like the punishment fits the crime. Well, and when prisons become privately owned and run entities, oh, I listened to a podcast on that. Did you tell yeah, us, tell us more, my, tell us just more. the privatization of prisons uh-huh. and that in order for these prisons to remain um, profitable, they got quotas. Yeah. You've got to keep people in prison uh-huh. and, and there's, you know, depending on who you believe, there's some research about, you know, drug laws and other stuff that, uh-huh. That are tied into it. That is, I come on, Brian Fromm. Come on. I would just encourage people to Google privatization of prisons. And was the podcast? Is there a podcast specifically so you would there, recommend? I don't remember it. Okay. I, I remember I have a couple different podcasts going. Right, might right. be conspiracy theories, but uh, I'd encourage people to go read because it's something I never knew about. Hmm. Never knew about. You just grow up thinking, well, prisons there for people who do bad. They do bad. They go right. to prison, exactly. and if depending on how what they did, that's how long they're in there. And Away we go. And it's way more it's complicated than that. Yep, yep. And I, I think you're right. The, the idea that some of these things might be going on without any knowledge of it is part of what makes them so dangerous, yep. right? Yep. I think it's, it's exactly what you just said. It's just so normative in our idea of how the system is to be run that to poke and ask questions about it can sometimes feel really scary. Yep. Um, and and if there's money to be made, or or maybe more importantly, money to be lost yep. by some light being shut on some of these things, you can understand why... It's been really hard to have some of these conversations. Yep, yep. So we'd love to hear what you have to think. You can do so at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, for Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You listen to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday evening, 5 o'clock now, Wednesday evening. Hump day. Oh, you say oh, that all man. the time. My kids love that commercial. <laughs> you say that all the time. <laughs> At least twice I'm in the sure. last 10 months. I'm sure it's traffic right now out there on the roads at 5 o'clock uh, is probably... Probably a bit much right now. Married, well, married to badges. Maybe somebody likes traffic. Maybe they find it to be peaceful. Do anybody like traffic? I like driving in my car by myself. Listen, I do enjoy it. The but- older that I get, the more I'm amazed by the vast number of things that different people are interested in or intrigued by. I'm sure someone on planet Earth is like, man. I love. I'm like the traffic, traffic guy. I'm the traffic guy. Show me just a sea of red brake lights, and I'm I'm a happy. I actually camper. have nowhere to be, but I'm going out. Yeah, I'm right. going to drive at seven thirty. Just on feel like I'm, I'm just with people. I love it. It's a it's a I'm real part, good time. I'm part of something. I'm part of something bigger. <laughs> this is a movement. I was lonely, and then I got into traffic. <laughs> uh, I bet you it exists. That's funny. That's funny. Okay, uh, New York Post. So this isn't. You know, Christianity Today, nothing like that. This is uh, the New York Post. Let me read to you this editorial that was written on October the 14th, 2019 by Cheryl Radikowski. Uh She is the mother of Elena Smith, uh, a Connecticut high school female athlete and a complainant, complainant 
in an ongoing Title IX investigation with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. Let me read it to you. It's going to take a couple minutes, and then I'd love your response. It says this, men are stronger than women, boys are faster than girls, and influx of hormones doesn't undo these realities. Study after study has reaffirmed this basic fact about what it means to be human. Most recently, Swedish scientists followed 11 biological men whose testosterone was dramatically decreased due to cross-sex hormone treatments over a year. Even when the men's testosterone levels matched that of a biological woman, the men's competitive advantages remained almost fully intact. With muscle size and bone density remaining virtually unchanged in some and decreasing only 5% in others. While such studies are crucial evidence in the debate over biologically male athletes competing in girl sports, I don't need to list all of them here. You can Google that yourself. But you can't Google my front row seat as a mother of a high school athlete who has been beaten out by a biological male athlete who identifies as a female. One who hasn't undergone hormone therapy or gender reassignment surgery and who competed a year earlier as a male. My daughter, now a sophomore, is a rising star in our home state of Connecticut. As a freshman, she led her high school team to its third straight championship in the Connecticut uh, Athletic Conference by winning the 100-meter, 200-meter, and 400-meter in one of the most dominant individual performances in meet history. She was an integral part of the uh, team's first place finish. Elena, my daughter, was devoted, has devoted countless days, nights, and weekends to training. She pushes herself to shave mere fractions of a second from her race time, yet she positions herself at the starting line knowing that even with all that training and with her best effort, the odds are against her, the numbers are against her, and the fairness doesn't really exist. See, since 2017, our state's high school athletic conference has allowed biological boys to compete against girls. It's enough that they subjectively identify as female. Since then... Two biological boys have won 15 women's track championship titles held by nine different girls in 2016. Not only that, the same two biological boys have taken away more than 50 chances for girls to compete at the next level of competition, running these girls right off the track and forcing them to be spectators of their own sport. As a parent, it's gut-wrenching to know that no matter how hard my daughter works to achieve her goal, she will lose athletic opportunities Uh, to a pernicious gender ideology. Left unchecked, this ideology will in long run eliminate fair play for all biological females in all sports. As we are seeing in Connecticut, a biological boy's subjective sense of his gender doesn't cancel out his physical advantage over girls. And the rest goes on to talk about uh, how this is unfair and why they are um, they are suing. Basically, they are they've called for an ongoing Title IX investigation. Uh, wondering, this is just such a messy, weird story. Uh, as you hear it, as you read it, are you like, man, that's not fair? Or I don't know, that's just the world we live in now. I appreciate the kind of first person narrative. I do too. I haven't read a lot. That's why I wanted to read like it most this, of it. right? Yeah. Um, actually, can I read a little more? Yeah, just to, I just felt like I was reading too much. So no, no, yeah, I'll read a little more because I think it's helpful. Uh, she says, lest I be assailed by the PC crowd, this has nothing to do with, quote, white privilege. My daughter is a beautiful young woman of color, nor is it about lifestyle. I believe love is love. It is about fairness of play, about women not being spectators in their own sports, about a level playing field. Our daughters deserve better than to have their athletic opportunities stolen from them. My daughter deserves to compete, to achieve, to earn the opportunity to advance to the next level of competition, to earn a college scholarship, and to enter into adulthood with all the confidence of a fierce, proven champion, a champion who knows she won fairly. No biological male should take those opportunities from my daughter, regardless of how he self-identifies, redefining sex to mean gender identity. As our state's athletic conference has done, as what the ACLU has, uh, is trying to do at the Supreme Court and, and the so-called Equality Act in Congress would do, destroys female athletics. 
That's why Alana and, and a small but steadily growing number of courageous young women have stepped forward and publicly called upon the federal government to restore the fair playing field they deserve. It's why more than 30,000 Americans have signed the, the hashtag fair play petition to keep all girls like Alana from ending up on the sidelines of their own sports. This is not a battle I sought. I would rather the contest take place on the track. But when my daughter's dreams are at stake, I can will, no longer stay silent and neither should you. Mm. So we don't have a lot of time left. Yep. There's a lot there, though. So and, much. And I appreciate that she owns her bias, right? Um, I would really love the opportunity, actually, to read a rebuttal to this. Because hmm. I'm having a hard time coming up with one yeah. in my head. Yeah. And I want to, just for the sake of a conversation. And I like playing both sides of the coin, mm-hmm. just for the sake of dialogue. Um, this, I, would guess the re- I would guess the rebuttal. Uh, first of all, when I read this as a parent, I'm like, I would be infuriated. Like and right. it might come to that in my and life. Right now, say you have, but like reading it, you can just feel the pa- the anger, like of like watching your kids' dreams, just something out of their control, yeah. changing that. You can just feel it right. in her writing. Right. Um, you know, she says, "I didn't ask for this," and so, um, so that's one. I would guess the rebuttal goes like this: Hey, we live in in this is the culture we live in now. You know what? Uh, people. Uh, yeah, but are choosing uh, their their gender identity. And if we let people choose their gender identity, we've got to let it go all the way. That's I'm guessing. I've okay. not read that. All right. That's my guess. Like if you're going to you can't go halfway with it. You got to go all the way. And that's where we've had arguments about locker rooms and sports and other things. And I think that's kind of the messy, slippery slope that you've got to deal with in this. So I don't know that it has to be an all or nothing. Okay, let's just assume. Um, how do I not get in trouble? Right here. Um, Get in trouble. I don't want to, though. Like that's <laughs> in general, though. Let's just assume this. Uh, let's assume that you're a part of a very, very left-leaning, progressive, open everything. All, everything goes kind of sentiment, kind of formation, kind of uh, worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there would be reasonable outcry? I mean, it begins by talking about the actual genetics, the actual science yeah. of muscle density and bone structure. Those things are really legitimate, particularly when it comes to athletic competition. Can you conceive of a world where someone might say, hey, identify all you want, get the change or not. That This is, again, this isn't Ian Simpkins speaking. This is just speaking hypothetically. Yep. Do all of those, but you do forfeit the right to compete at in athletic circles because of the studies that we're finding, because of, because of the, the clear uh, biological advantages that we're, we're finding in here. Like, could you see that ever being a widely accepted position where it's like, hey, here's the caveat, though. You go ahead and do whatever you want. Uh, however, by doing this, you are forfeiting some. I mean, what you're saying makes sense. We just are not a culture of caveats over this subject, right? It's, yeah. I feel like we are culturally uh, all in, all, all or nothing. Yeah. And, and what you're saying makes sense. Uh, but on the other side of the spectrum, they're probably going to go, well, where do the caveats end? Can you tell me I can't X, I can't Y? Um, what maybe are those X's and Y's in your mind? Like what what could be where they would find that too intrusive or too restrictive? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I don't know. I'm trying to read some articles while we're talking about this. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the difference between uh, changing the definition of gender versus the definition of sex. Right. So uh, Deb Hirsch's Redefining Sex. Great read in that regard, if you're curious in some of those categories. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that could that could play into this. But it, it is uh, the one reason I wanted to read this was because it just shows 
the challenges that are ahead for us as a culture. Like you might be thinking, well, this is a small deal. It's just track. Right. Well, it's not a small deal because there's this is just kind of pulling the string of stuff right. that's just going to be in front of us. And yeah, uh, I think there's going to be huge disagreements about uh, what's right and what's wrong. And I think uh, as Christians, we need to be able to step into those and, and speak of them well and with grace. And not just here's what I'll I'll end with this. Yep. Not just speak into situations like this. The mm-hmm. church, Big C Church has got to do a better job at developing and articulating a theology of the body mm. and a theology of sexuality. Right now, at least in Western Protestantism, there's n- we've not done great. There's it's there, but you really got to dig. I'm sure. I mean, maybe you maybe you could off the top of your head could you even think of a an American evangelical who's written or talked extensively about a theology of the body. No, or theology. No, so I can't. This, it, there's, I think that's a problem, yeah. and I think we need to do better at not just like speaking into issues when they happen, mm. but like how does the church frame itself and understand these things at like a theological level? And I think that's really important. Yeah, that's a great point, man. Well, love to know your uh, your your feedback on this. You can do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you're listening to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. <laughs> Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I love I love just your facial reactions to whatever music we come back to. Sometimes like yeah, and sometimes like eh. This one got more of an eh from you. Yeah, I don't know why. Was this on my list, John? No. Ah, oh, there we go. Was this on my list? You don't have a list. I know. I was playing. I was tricking. Yes, Brian. It was on your list. Was this, so this yeah. was this was your move here. Yeah. No, this is my call. I'll, I'll take that as a, I will take it out of the loop. Ian would like to speak with you later. <laughs> no, let's, do it, let's do it right now. We'll do it live. We'll do, we'll do it live. <laughs> uh, from a website called wellandgood.com, uh, I, I put this in here under the rundown for you for brain science, Mr. Brain Science. Here we go. I'm Mr. Brain Science. Not for the show you are. That's unfortunate. <laughs> the title says this, I'm a neurologist, and these are the five things I do to keep my brain healthy. I'm interested. Brain health, uh, they write, it's not exactly sexy, but it's basically Disagree. the boss when it comes to your overall health. <laughs> After all, without a healthy brain, you wouldn't be able to enjoy the activities you love the most, whether it be a solo run, a competitive trivia game with friends, or rolling on the floor giggles with your little one. Hmm. Having a healthy mind is crucial, which is why you want to listen up to uh, as Ajit Sadhai, a neurologist and the director of neurocritical care at the California Institute of Neuroscience, shares the habits and activities he does to promote and improve brain function every single day. Uh, it's advice you and your brain simply can't miss. So here we go. A director of neurocritical care saying, this is what I do for my brain. Probably worth listening to. There's five things. If you're listening right now, I encourage you to go get a pen because these are actually really solid, achievable suggestions. Yep. Why don't you go for number one? I would love to go for number one. Thank you for offering, Brian. You're welcome. Number one, regularly exercise. Exercise. Exercise your mind. Just like the rest of your body, Dr. Sadhi says keeping your brain active and engaged is key to optimal brain health. My brain is busy all the time, he says. And no, he doesn't mean thinking about work. I love puzzles and doing the crosswords or Sudoku, as well as reading the paper and challenging my brain to learn and do new and different things constantly. And the benefits have been proven. In a recent study conducted by the University of Exeter, I think so. All right. Researchers found people who regularly completed word puzzles were found to have a brain that clocked in 10 years younger than their actual age. Wow. If puzzles aren't really your thing, don't sweat. Learning new skills or languages, regularly reading and otherwise engaging your brain in different ways can help. That's fascinating. Number two, munch on brain food. Mm. Dr. Sadi says 
he would be remiss if he didn't include healthy foods in his recipe for total brain health. He sticks to foods that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids and other nutrients that help to boost brain health, like fatty fish, think think salmon or mackerel, eggs, yogurt, and fresh juice. I don't eat any of those things. <laughs> so I got worried reading that list. Oh, no. <laughs> Where's 100 grand bars and gummy bears on there? Uh, I also eat a lot of nuts and whole grains that are rich in vitamin E, he says, pointing to the antioxidant known for its reputation for supporting healthy brain function. Mm. Dr. Sadi also makes sure to incorporate lutein free rich sorry lutein rich foods like dark leafy green vegetables think kale spinach collard and turnip greens as well as peas and eggs into his overall diet Uh, in a 2017 study published in frontiers in aging neuroscience lutein was shown to potentially have a protective effect against cognitive decline wow all right number three sweat it out Breaking a sweat is also a daily part of Dr. Sahid's routine. I get some kind of exercise every day for 30 minutes. Do you exercise 30 days a minute? 30, 30, 30 minutes a, a day. Minute. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, sadly, I do not. <laughs> Unless you're counting like walking up from here, from the parking garage to here and I some other not. places. I do not yeah, count no. that. Uh, yeah. Walking, riding a bike, running, whatever, it's crucial. It's true. Recent research presented by the Cognitive Neuroscience Society, or CNS for short, showed that regular exercise not only has long-term effects, but also uh, immediate Immediate ones for brain and mental health. Just one sweat session can lead to an instant cognitive boost. The American Heart Association recommends adults get at least 150 minutes per week. Wow. Of moderate intensity aerobic activity like brisk walking or dancing. Well, I dance a lot in here. That's <laughs> 75 minutes per week of vigorous aerobic activity such as running, cycling, or swimming laps. You can also do a combination of both to make sure you clock in your weekly recommendations. So 150 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity. That is uh, higher than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Number four is interesting. Live with purpose. Sound far out? Think again. Dr. Saadi says one of the things that helps keep his brain healthy is moving through his day with a purpose. As a physician, as a physician, I have a built-in purpose. My patients, he says. Hmm. However, my purpose goes far beyond that. It's my family, my community, and my colleagues, too. And if I wasn't involved in this way, I'd volunteer to help others, maybe through a local nonprofit or outreach organization. This isn't just a Dr. Saadi thing. Living with a purpose is one of the nine tent poles of Blue Zones community. Communities, huh. you know, the areas that have some of the healthiest and longest living populations on the planet, as it's often associated with happiness and better mood. Additionally, a 2014 study showed that participants who volunteered reported, quote, significantly better physical and mental health than those who didn't volunteer. Wow. All the more reason to get out there and lend a hand. That's fascinating. All right. Last one. Drink up. Whether it's a cup of coffee or drinking water, Dr. Sadi uh, says they both make his list for better brain health. Not only does he enjoy the benefits of caffeine in terms of maintaining energy levels and staying more alert, but Dr. Sadi says research shows there are compounds in coffee that impact the brain proteins connected to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Research is ongoing, but we may discover that these compounds also help slow cognitive decline and the onset of certain brain diseases, he says. That is good news for everybody. As for water, Dr. Saad, he says he refills as much as possible. Drinking water helps the skin look hydrated and healthy, helps keep hunger at bay, and most importantly, prevents dehydration. He says dehydration negatively affects the brain. It affects concentration, coordination, and mood, too. For some people, drinking plenty of water can help ward off headaches, he adds. Yeah, as a non-coffee drinker, 
I'm, I'm a little worried on that one. I've always felt good that I don't drink coffee. Well, get rid of that feeling. Yeah. Like, I've always been like, well, at least that's one healthy thing I'm, uh, I'm doing, avoiding coffee. Oh, I don't know that you've always felt like that. I don't like coffee, but right. then, like, as, a, as an aside, I'm like, I'm really glad I don't like it because the people who do like it, they're in trouble. Hold on. Let me just... Uh, yeah, you're drinking in front of me. Let me, just, <laughs> let me get a sip right here. <laughs> uh, I was looking for unsweetened iced tea in there. Where no, was that? Where gonna, was that? I mean, I'm sure that it does. I mean, there's maybe... I mean, if there's caffeine in unsweetened tea. So let me read those five again real quick because yep. I thought they were really good. Uh, regularly exercise your mind. So he's saying like puzzles and, you know, reading yep. and things like that. Uh, munch on brain food and he gives a whole list. Sweat it out. So at least 30 minutes a day, some kind of exercise. Live with purpose. That's super interesting. And then drink up, which is all I heard was coffee, 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 coffee. <laughs> uh, and I'm feeling really good about myself. So. so which one of these jumps out to you? Which one of those is like, oh, that's something I'm either doing or not doing but didn't really expect? Nah, I won't answer that question because I, I don't want to. But I uh, actually, <laughs> I, I like the live with purpose one, though, because I feel like sometimes like you and I are pastors. So we talk about the importance of living with purpose and volunteering. And we usually couch it in some sort of like soul, spiritual language. I love, love, love. Whenever the brain science yeah. confirms things that like ancient mystics have been saying for a long time, like, hey, it's actually not, it's not just like good for your metaphoric heart to give back because yeah. you'll be a more generous person. It's like, no, it's actually affecting like your neuroplasticity and your brain health. And mm. I think, uh, I never see that. I find it encouraging. What's fascinating to me uh, about that one is think about the conversation we had a couple of days ago about retirement. Yeah, right, right. And the people, I think it's pretty well proven that the people who just kind of shut it down in retirement, they decline physically much more quickly. And much this would, more quickly. This would get at this. Like, even uh-huh. if you're out there and you're a little older and you're retired, like, keep engaged. So everything from regularly exercising your mind to exercising your body, but also, like, have a purpose in life. Like, yeah. keep going. Like, don't stop living. Yeah. I think that is, again, easier said than done, right? Yeah. Like, I think the more I talk to people who are... In retirement or nearing retirement, they have the temptation to just stop, you know, when you don't have something to go to in the same way, living with purpose. I imagine a lot of people are listening and they're like, yeah, I totally want to live with purpose. And then when it comes to actually taking the steps to carving out an evening out of your already busy week or, you know, all that stuff can be more daunting than we let on, which is why I would say if one of these five really stands out to you, pick one yep. in the next month to really go, go after. It. Don't feel like overwhelmed under an avalanche of ideas just pick one of them and go after him yep absolutely well coming up next uh one of our favorite pastors that we talk about all the time scott sauls he wrote a blog called this this week called why is loneliness a thing uh going to talk about loneliness here next on the common good am 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you uh, here joining us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Also on Twitter at Common Good Talk. We'd love to have you follow us at those and uh, continuing the conversation there. It's kind of where we get to know some of the people uh, who listen, whether you listen to us on the radio or on the podcast. You the might goodies, be thinking, right? The, the goodies. <laughs> yes. The commoners. <laughs> oh, stop with that. I'd like to distance myself <laughs> from Brian's comments. I go with goodies better. Yeah. Uh, those are two terrible options. Better than commoner. Oh, uh, yeah, you might be thinking, wait, you have a podcast? Yes, we do. You can find it at wherever it is you get your podcast. Just look up the Common Good uh, radio show. You'll find us there. Scott Sauls. And, I, you know, we, we have kind of our go-to people. And Scott Sauls, as a reminder, is a pastor and an author. Uh, out of Nashville, I believe, Tennessee. 
Uh, he blogs at scottsauls.com. And you were you were joking before we jumped into this of like, man, he writes a lot. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. Yep, he's a great follow on Twitter. And uh, we've read a lot of his stuff. He just recently this week uh, wrote a blog post called Why is Loneliness a Thing? And let me just read some of it. Uh, and then I think this is going to get uh, this is going to get to the heart of what a lot of us struggle with. He says 20th century novelist Thomas Wolfe said that the uh, central and inevitable fact of human existence is loneliness. Whether we are introverts or extroverts, married or single, standing on the stage or sitting in the cheap seats, preaching sermons or listening to love songs, we all share the struggle to connect. He says, I resonate with this thought. Do you? But we might ask, why is loneliness a thing? Why is it such a thing that medical professionals identify loneliness as a chief cause for disease and even death? Why is it such a thing that the UK believed it necessary to commission a new position at the highest level of government called the Minister of Loneliness? Why does feeling lonely seem like the norm versus the exception for so many of us? According to the Bible, we experience loneliness not because there is something wrong with us, but because there's something right with us. We experience loneliness because we know deep down that we were made for connection, intimacy, and love. Then we seem, oh wait, we were made for more connection, intimacy, and love than we seem to experience. We sense that this is not how it's supposed to be. This is true experientially, and it's also true theologically. I read that. I'm like, yes, that is that is right, right there. Why, why does that resonate so much with you? Uh, because I think that uh, you you see a common thread with people of all different, uh, you know, uh, wirings and ages that there's this common hum in our in our culture of people feeling lonely. I feel lonely at times. Sometimes you're in a sea of people and you're like. You know, does anybody see me? Does anybody know me? Right. Uh, and I think you hear that drum. And it's so interesting to hear him say we we are we get lonely because something's right with us, not because something's wrong with us, that we've right. got this common longing for connection. And it's never really perfectly found here uh, on this earth. And, and I think that's what he's wrestling with here. I think it's interesting, too, that every time we read articles about pastors in particular, loneliness always shows way high up on that list. You know, when the last one I read said something like. 60% of the people who responded, 60% of the pastors who responded um, admitted that they didn't have a single close confidant yeah, outside yeah. of their spouse, which, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend the other day and how it's weird because, you know, a lot of times you make friends in college. Yeah, that's the sweet spot. It is kind of the sweet spot for a number of really obvious reasons. And then maybe if you're lucky, you like live in the same town for a while. But it's pretty inevitable that people start to, you know, move on or move away. And, you know, my wife and I were even talking about this. She's like, some of your closest people don't live like in our zip code. Mm. And I was kind of tracing back how true that was like, yeah, cause I'd like lived this really important season with them. Yes. And then understandably they took jobs or they got married and moved away or whatever. And what I'm finding, I mean, even at our church, when I talk with young adults in particular, uh, the number one thing that they ask me about is how do I just make friends in my adult years? Yeah. Like I, I go to church and I see all these other young adults but I'm not in college. I'm not in a club. I don't have like a thing that I'm regularly connecting yep. with. So it's this really awkward strength. Like to get really practical, a lot of them are like, how do you even make friends when you're 26 and you're not trying to date them, but you're just wanting to like establish some connections? I think there's a real question mark around how do I actually do that well yeah. in this like highly digitized, highly isolated age. How do you answer that question when they ask you that question? That's a great question. That's the $64,000 question as an adult. Well, that's why we have a young adult ministry. We, pro we just provide spaces 
for them to meet. I'm like, we'll set it up. We'll determine a room and a time. And, you know, we'll put some budget money towards food. Yep. Like, just try to s- set up the environments for them to connect without it feeling like, oh, gosh, this is another church service or this is like this is just sort of a this is like speed dating. You know, you got to kind of walk that line a little bit because it can get tricky. But that was our commitment. Like, oh, we're just going to keep yeah. creating events and spaces for uh, young adults to show up. And I don't think it's limited to young adults, though. I think I think people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s still probably struggle yep. as much as anybody. Um, but maybe you get better at it over time. And I just think it's I think it's like a skill that you have to learn almost. It is a weird to think of friendship and, and connection as a skill. Like, I, But I think it's true. Yeah. Uh, and he said something really, really interesting, especially for the church. He says a surface reading of these verses that he just did in Genesis 2 may tempt us to think that according to scripture, the sole answer to our loneliness problem is marriage and that those of us who aren't married are relationally incomplete. He says that reading is flawed for many reasons. First, as many sad hearts have come to discover, sometimes the deepest forms of loneliness happen inside a marriage. Right. This is especially true when a husband and wife isolate from each other and struggle to communicate, apologize and forgive in times of discord. Discord. Marriage is not a magic bullet that cures the loneliness problem. Second, if it were true that only married people can be relationally complete, we would be forced to conclude that the Bible's foremost teachers on marriage, that being Jesus and the Apostle Paul, Paul, were both incomplete. Yeah, right. And I, I, I don't love that he points this out, but it's so true to say that oftentimes marriage, it like uh, it, it highlights your loneliness. Mm-hmm. It highlights people's loneliness. Of, oh, man, I thought that would be the answer for yeah. me. Uh, but I, I feel not even known within my marriage. And then you ca- that kind of can really spiral out of control. Well, and the, and the whole point of the article isn't necessarily a marriage or singleness article. But we've said it before on the show. One, the point that he just made is that if you're a single person and you're allowing any voice to convince you that you're incomplete or that God can't use you, exactly what he's saying. Look at Paul. Look at Jesus. The other thing, especially, you know, in the Genesis account, doesn't say the haves become whole. It says the two become one. Right. Yep, this idea yep. that like. I'm half and incomplete. I'm in the, the JV of singleness till I graduate to the varsity of marriage. Um, marriage is great. Marriage is unbelievable. Phenomenal. Yes. It doesn't bring, complete you. Jesus yes. does. Period. Yeah. And Jer- Jerry Maguire lied to us. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. Yes. You know. But you know what I mean? I, I think that that's um, what I find interesting about that example is we do that in a lot of different ways where we assume we assume that like network is the same as community and it's not. I think we it's really easy to see like social media friends or likes or followers and assume that that means, oh, I have community. Oh, I have intimacy. A network is not the same as community. And there's so much of what we do that's now like a facade. It's like a shadow of what true intimacy is. And it does a pretty good job of tricking us into think like you were saying, oh, I've been in a crowd full of people and felt totally alone. Yes. On the surface. That doesn't make any sense. Like, well, you're with people. But anyone who's felt that knows that's absolutely true, even though, like, a surface reading is like, no, Brian's around a lot. He looks fine. Like, you're a friendly person. So even an observation, if I were in that room, would say, oh, Brian looks like he's having a good time. He's talking to people. He's doing this. He's totally connected. He's totally, there's intimacy there with the people that he's he's with. And I think that's the other side of it is we've gotten really good, I think, at faking it. And I think social media has elevated that as well because it's, Everyone, it's everyone's best version of themselves. So, you know, to really kind of pull the veil back and admit, I'm just feeling kind of lonely. Sometimes it can feel like an insult to the people that thought they knew you really well. Like, what do you mean lonely? I thought I was your friend. And then then that's a whole other odd discussion. Like, I've actually not, I don't really feel like we have true intimacy. I just feel like we're 
surface. I feel like we're Facebook. It leads to all sorts of other difficult, yeah. hard conversations, which is why I think so many pastors struggle with it. Hundred percent. Let me t- let me read to you how uh, Saul's ends his stuff here. He says, "So then." Uh, So then shall we go there? Shall we take a risk, show some transparency, introduce ourselves to somebody, go first in saying, hi, I'm blank. Here's my story. What's yours? Uh, Would you be interested interested in getting to know each other? Because I'm interested in that. Hmm. Shall we join a church and show up every Sunday and look for the same four or five people, initiate conversation and also reach out to a few that we haven't met? Shall we begin acting like the family of God says that we are in Christ? Some food for thought for us to consider and the health of our souls and the authenticity of our lives depends on it. And whatever may come, Jesus will surely be in it with us. Ooh, that's good. I mean, that's really good. I, that's why we read Scott Saul's stuff often to you here, because loneliness is a thing. It is a problem. It is an issue that doesn't, you're not the only lonely one out there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and it's worth going first, as scary as that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can read that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, land the plane, dock the boat. Chain the bike, park chain, the car. Chain the bike. Yeah, you got to chain it up. Park the car and uh, any other metaphor you'd like to go with. But we are going to end this show with some interweb insanity. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Along with Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is the part of the show where we just dive into the interweb insanity. And into the scary minds of our producer, John, and our executive producer, Keith Conrad. They give us stories, sight unseen, funny, a little disturbing. People and, are probably uh, wondering, who's John? Because you always call him PJ. Yeah, yeah. PJ is John. Producer John. <laughs> like, what is PJ? I never thought what PJ stands for. People are probably really underwhelmed by our cleverness. Like, wait, <laughs> PJ is producer John? <laughs> Where do they ever, what could PJ ever stand <laughs> yeah, for? right. <laughs> Well, welcome to the disappointment. Exactly. That's the common good. Welcome to your disappointment. <laughs> Daily, four to six. So. Just disappointing audiences, Monday through Friday. Yep, yep. All right. So you are going first. Read the crazy story now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best introduction. All right, Georgia. A college student pleads guilty to running Ponzi scheme from Fraternity House. Nice. I, this can't be the first time, right? No. A former University of Georgia student pleaded guilty Friday to running a Ponzi scheme that defrauded investors, including fellow students and their families, from his Athens fraternity house. There's an Athens joke in here somewhere. Uh, Syed Aram Arbab, 22, of Augusta, admitted to defrauding 117 people in a scheme that attracted about a million dollars from investors, prosecutors said. A news release said uh, Arbab spent funds on clothes, shoes, adult entertainment, and gambling trips to Vegas. The defendant engaged in a pattern of deceit to gain the trust of unwitting investors who gave them their hard-earned money for what they believed was a sound investment. From May 2018 to May of this year, Bob sought investors for Artis Proficio Capital Management and Artis Proficio... It's not important. Among his false claims, prosecutors said Bob said a former UGA athlete and NFL star was among his investors. Bob pleaded to a single count of securities fraud. He is scheduled for sentencing in January. Actually, I'm not even mad. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little mad. There you go. There you go. I've always wondered, like the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, it's gonna fall at some point. Like, wouldn't I mean, you just be terrified that, like, clearly? Have you seen the Fire Festival no, uh, documentary yet? No. Yeah, I these know. people live without fear. That's interesting because every time I've read anything about a Ponzi scheme, it's like it's gonna go down. It's just a matter of when. Where does so. the name Ponzi come from? I don't know. First guy who did a Ponzi scheme. I'm looking it up right now. Illinois. Rat-eating cheese 
rat eating cheese at Illinois grocery store caught on video. The village of Allsip issued a response after a rat was seen on video eating cheese at a grocery store. The video posted on YouTube Wednesday by an account called Film Mason Productions. In the description, the person said the rat uh, was seen eating Swiss cheese in the refrigerated deli meat and cheese section of the Allsip Food for Less. Uh, no matter how close I got, Ralph fearlessly ignored the camera and proved once and for all why the store is apparently named Food for Less. On Friday, the village responded on Facebook and said Mayor uh, John Ryan dispatched a building commissioner and health inspector to the store to inspect it. Oh, rats. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. That works. Uh, Charles Ponzi, by the way. Oh, Chuck. Uh, Chuck Ponzi, born March 3rd, 1882, was an Italian swindler and con artist. There in you both go. the United States and Canada. There you go. Oh, Florida. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Florida Republican wishes happy birthday to the U.S. Navy with picture of Russian battlecruiser. That's not great. <laughs> Florida Republican wished the U.S. Navy a happy birthday with a picture of a Russian military ship in a social media post. Uh, Brian Mast of Florida uploaded a battlecruiser stock image with the message, happy birthday, U.S. Navy, and signed the picture with his name on Sunday as the force celebrated its 244th birthday. But little did the U.S. Army veteran and Purple Heart recipient know the ship was not part of the U.S. Navy's fleet, but the Russian battlecruiser Piotr Veliki. Uh, as first revealed by Politico journalist Dave Brown. No disrespect to the USS Rustolium here, but I'd be better off in the Merrimack. <sighs> Can we just say the humor that he put a picture of a boat and his name's Brian Mast? Oh, how did I miss that? There you go. That's good. Well Arizona. Done. Airbnb host says his toddler found heroin left by a guest. Oh, boy. A Phoenix Airbnb host says guest trashed his studio and left behind what he believes was a packet of heroin that his one-year-old toddler nearly put in its mouth. Ran right over and I snatched it from him. Uh, he says he had been cleaning out the studio Thursday when his little boy found the tinfoil packet lying underneath the bed. Uh, Fiore works as a firefighter paramedic in northern Arizona and says he had some narcotics training. Uh, Fiore immediately destroyed the suspected heroin packet by burning it in his barbecue. Now, as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad, okay? <laughs> Destroying in the barbecue, though? Is that a good idea? Yeah, but then it says, I didn't get to this part, a woman, her husband, and a four-year-old had been staying there for four days. Oh, boy. Uh, someone should check that four-year-old. That's, yeah, no kidding. All right, last but last, last but last. Man. I'm going with last but not least. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Georgia, two-bedroom Georgia home for sale for $1 by motivated Ohio seller. Talk about a steal. Uh, 1,050-square-foot home in Hawkinsville, Georgia, owned by Butler County in Ohio, has taken an extreme cut from $8,000 to the low, low price of $1. If you look, look to the photo, it's not great. Nope. The dilapidated two-bedroom, one-bath house at 235 Dooley Street, which is currently valued at $15,000 for its property, has been listed since 2015 with no interested buyers prompting the owner to make the desperate move. The string of events that led but, uh, Butler County to own a home more than 600 miles away in Hawkinsville started when an elderly woman moved to Ohio to be with her daughters. When you sold me this house, you forgot to mention one little thing. You didn't tell me it was built on an Indian burial ground! <laughs> <laughs> no! You did it! Well, that's not my recollection. Oh, so keep going. <laughs> yeah, well. Yep, there he goes. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> he says he mentioned it five Still or going. six times. <laughs> that's a classic. Always going out with Homer Simpson. Well, it's been a fun day. Uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow on The Common Good from 4 to 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This has been The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.